Let's go ahead and pray again and ask God to bless our time at Exodus. Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would uh, bless this time, that you would guide us, that we would be um, sobered, that we would be encouraged, that we would be informed, that we would be warned as we consider the first three plagues tonight. Lord, help us to import our senses. Uh, We'll talk about it more during the study, but I, I really pray that you would help us to be able to climb into this text and and understand what you're doing, see what's going on, um, grab hold of the bigger picture while being able to smell the stench of a plague. Lord, we are a desperately needy people. We do not come here tonight having figured most things out and just needing some help along the way. Uh, We are here because uh, you are our God and all true blessing, all true understanding uh, exists only in Christ, and so we come before you humbly. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little recap before we dive into verse 14 of chapter 7. At the end of chapter 5, what does Moses accuse God of? Evil. Okay, we, we mark that as a low point because accusing God of evil is not good, Correct. We all on the same page as we get started. Yeah, at the end of chapter 5, um, oh, I'm in John. Have it. Been there for eight years. So, it's like, that's not what it says. We're not in John. We're in Exodus. It's Wednesday, not Sunday. All right. Again, the end of chapter 5, it says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Low point. Major low point. Uh, Why did he accuse God of evil? Because Pharaoh didn't listen to him. And what did he know about what Pharaoh's response would be? That he wouldn't listen to him, right? So God reveals things to us regularly where he says, this is what's going to happen. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial and so on and so forth. And yet when we find ourselves in the middle of those things, we act as though the Lord has never spoken, never revealed anything to us, and everything is wrong and and, and off balance. Uh, That's what happened here. He is accusing God of evil because what happened is God interceded, God heard their prayers, and the result was that their conditions would worsen for a season. And so the question came up this last week, it's, I, I, I ask it not expecting an answer, is, is, but for you to think about it, are you okay if God's intervening in your circumstance means worse conditions for a time? Because that's a very real reality for many throughout the ages. In chapter 6, verse 9, it says, um, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So what happened when he relayed the good news from God? Why did they not respond? Or why did they not listen? Y'all awake back there? All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, the broken spirit... Their conditions are bad. And uh, we talked last week about why does this cause some men, what does this cause some men to do with the message? 
He had a good news message. He relayed it to the people. Their conditions were bad. Their spirit was broken, so they didn't listen. What does that cause some men to do with the message? Alter it? How would it be altered? Easier to listen to. Okay. Why would you do that? Easier on yourself? Why else? Less to explain? Please the audience? Yeah. What's the difference between an audience and a congregation? Yeah? Yeah, An audience is being entertained. A congregation is being informed as worshipers while worshiping. And so many men will change the message so as to make it more pleasing and more acceptable and more palatable to the carnal taste buds and mind. Um, Moses could have said, "Uh uh-oh, they didn't like what I said. They didn't hear it. Let me change it up a little bit to make it a little more savory. Like, this is all going to end really soon. When we know it's not going to end really soon, this, this is... They got some plagues to go through. They got some things to happen. The the slavery would get more bitter and more harsh throughout time. Uh, One other thing we considered last week. What's the difference between humility and futility? Yeah, humility says, God, I need you desperately. And futility says, there's no point. And we kind of saw Moses going back and forth. He, He was increasing in his humility, but... For a season there, it was like, what's the point? How long do I have to do this? Is there any purpose to what I'm doing? Because it's very hard, especially at the end of chapter 5 when he says, you're evil God. Low point. Um, He's dealing more in futility than humility there. And what happened when Aaron threw his staff on the ground? It turned into a... Okay, and what did the magicians do? And then what happened? It ate them. That's so cool. I'll just read it briefly. Um, At the end of, uh, let's see, where was it? Uh, Seven, the Lord said to Moses, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. So for a moment, um, I was talking to Terry afterwards last week, and for a moment, for, for Moses and Aaron, that must have been a real bummer. They're thinking, yeah, you can't do that. And they throw, this, throw it down, and it turns into a serpent. And then all, everyone else does it. And it's like, oh, dang. Low point. Again, what's happening? Here we are. There's Pharaoh. Um, they just did the same thing. This was my little thing that I was going to show them how big God was, and they did the same thing. So for a moment, it may have been a little bit frustrating, uh, anxiety creating for them. And then what happens? For each man cast down his staff, they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. There must have been a high five right there. And still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Um, They did not expect that to happen, but it was pretty cool that it happened. And we'll see things like that happen continue through the plagues. Um, Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. I want to consider for a moment, our main text is going to start in 14 tonight, but we have to look at these two verses to see that this is a turning point. Um, Moses 
from the end of chapter 5 and Moses from the beginning of chapter 7 are very different Moseses in a sense because of what God is doing and how God is breaking him. God is showing him his greatness so that Moses can walk according to God's will and not Moses' will. Um, The shift is being made from chapter 6 to 7. The focus is shifting from the person of deliverance, Moses, which we focused on a lot up through the first six chapters. And in chapter 7 is a turning point where we're focusing on the actual acts of redemption and the work of redemption by God. Uh, A.W. Pink notes that Moses is no more timid, hesitant, and discouraged. Acting in God's stead, listen to what Moses does. Moses was to rule over Egypt's proud king. When he says, I'm going to make you like God, and you're going to rule over Egypt's proud king, commanding him what he should do, controlling him where he does wrong, and punishing him for his disobedience so that Pharaoh had to apply to Moses for the removal of the plagues. So as at the end of chapter 5, God, you're evil. You're not delivering us at all. And now we're going to see a different, a change because of what God has done. And there's a difference between... Uh, Moses in those two chapters. As well, from this point forward in Exodus, we're going to see this vivid picture of, I'm going to call it the conflict between good and evil. The conflict between good and evil. We'll see it in the plagues. We'll see it in responses. We'll see it in what the magicians do, that there's this conflict. And I call it a conflict on purpose. There's a lot of commentators and, you know, just authors that call it a battle. The battle between good and evil or the battle between God and the devil. And I have a hard time, I rather would say conflict than battle, because I don't see God losing ever. I don't see him weakened ever. I don't see him taking two hits and having to stumble and regain and come back. Uh, There's a conflict for sure, but God's like always in the lead. He's never taking a backseat to anyone ever. So we'll see this conflict between good and evil. As we look at the first plagues tonight, it's really important, we've talked about this before, to import your senses Climb into the text with me tonight to really try to experience what it would look like and smell like and sound like. We're going to talk about frogs. We're going to talk about gnats. We're going to talk about blood, all kinds of fun stuff. God is revealing judgment and interaction with fallen and hard-hearted man for the purpose of a global and eternal impact. God didn't just want to have an impact on Egypt at the time. God dealt with them in such a way that we would be impacted sitting here tonight. Also, each plague has significance. We'll talk more about it this week and next week. And it's type, the type of plague that it is. It has significance in the effect that it achieves. The plagues each have significance in the order which they fall. They have significance in the cultural norm that they challenge. The plagues have significance in the truth that they foreshadow. So let's climb in carefully. Look at 714. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Who did that? God. Okay, just make sure we're clear. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Why why does he refuse to let the people go? Because God hardened his heart. Okay. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. 
There's a lot of specific words in here that God chooses for a specific reason. So first, God calls Moses to go to the hard-hearted Pharaoh in the morning at the bank of the Nile. There's no need to wait till the afternoon. Let's get going early. And this is where it all began. Think about this. Where did Moses' life begin? Right there at the Nile. I mean, the imagery here is beautiful. Moses, who was afflicted from birth, kill all the Hebrew sons, um, was not killed. He was protected in his little baby ark, and he was put in the Nile, and he was taken out by, Mo- by Pharaoh's daughter. And so that's where it began, and it's just this beautiful picture here where God's saying, go to him at the, at the bank of the Nile, the same place this whole story started. And you take your staff with you. Can't you imagine Pharaoh going, being down there, likely bathing and possibly worshiping, and looking up and seeing Moses, who he's already talked to briefly, with that staff. I mean, what, what do you think Pharaoh thought when he saw the staff? Yeah, not this guy again. You owe me a few staffs. You ate the others, or that ate the others. Um, uh, it's likely to be starting out the day, bathing, maybe even worshiping the God of the Nile, as was customary according to many historians. Note that God knew where Pharaoh would be. God sent Moses to that place. It's important for Moses to immediately turn Pharaoh's attention to God. So as opposed to looking up and saying, oh, it's you again, he looks up and is quickly directed to say, oh, it's God again. Oh, it's that guy who represents the God of the Hebrews who I am enslaving. It's also important to note that Pharaoh, what what was he actually doing? What has he not done according to that last verse there, verse 3? I'm sorry, verse uh, 16. What has he not done? He's not let the people go, which is an act of what? Disobedience. This is a big thing. It's important that Pharaoh understand that what he is doing is disobedience. It's not a matter of preference or belief. It is a matter of disobeying and a matter of unbelief. Those who are sent by God like Moses are called uh, to communicate the same message today. It's not just a matter of, well, this may be different. It's a matter of disobedience. Pharaoh is being disobedient to God. God said, do this. You didn't do this, so you're disobeying God, and God judges that. That's the message. Don't change it. It's the same for us today. Now, as we look at these plagues, turn the page there. We're going to look at uh, verse 17 next. As we look at them, note, the first three plagues interfere with the comfort of the Egyptians. The first three plagues, they interfere with the comfort of the Egyptians. The second three plagues, um, the Lord strikes their possessions. And in the final three plagues, he brings desolation and death. So we see them increasing. We also see them in groups of three. And also there's a pattern that we're going to see where two have a warning and the third has no warning. It just happens. Two have a warning, the third has a warning, has no warning, and it just happens. Now look at verses 17 through 25. Again, climb in. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh on the bank of the Nile. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. 
the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the river, the rivers, the canal, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So like if you have a pot of water in a stone vessel at home, you're going to go home and that's going to be blood too. So this isn't just it turned red. This isn't just uh, some, I read a lot of stuff this week that just, just dismissed that it's actually blood, that it was just red water and it was just a natural circumstance. And when the river went low, the conditions would change and then the frogs would come out and then people get sick and it just happens. Like, like it didn't just happen at all. God made a plan and he's carrying out to make a point. And so um, it is every piece of water is blood. Even those that are standing in your pot at home, that'll be blood. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Have you ever been around something that's recently died? You ever hunted? You ever had your husband bring home something he has recently hunted? There's just nuts no, that's never happened, Ginevra. Um, if you've ever smelled something that's died, if you've ever smelled a lot of blood at once, um, it, it, it has a smell about it that's completely unique. And we would often equate it with our own senses to, to the smell of death. And it kind of gets in your nose and, it, and it's like you can almost smell it the next day if there's been enough of it, if it's potent enough. All of it turned into blood, a whole river. And the fish in the Nile died. You ever smelled dead fish? You ever smelled live fish? Okay, kill the fish, let it sit in bloody water. Starting to see what it smells like. Import your senses. And the Nile stank, to say the least. So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, the first plague is the Nile turning to blood. If you briefly turn to Exodus 12, 12, we're going to get some insight into what God's doing here. Exodus 12, 12 says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the...
where each plague is in reference to a particular Egyptian god, that may well be the case. Some of the commentators that I've read are more valid than others. Um, But at the very least, we can be certain from the Bible and from other extra-biblical historical documents that the plagues of Exodus 7 through 10 would have been understood by Pharaoh and the Egyptians as a direct assault on the king, King Pharaoh. Now, King Pharaoh was responsible for some things according to the Egyptian culture. They would look at Pharaoh and not just see a guy who ruled the government, like we would look at our president and say he makes decisions in the government for the country. What they did is they looked at Pharaoh and there was a whole other view that we're not very used to seeing. And it was this, that he was responsible for the proper function of the Nile, that the Pharaoh was responsible for the proper function of the crops, that the Pharaoh was responsible for the proper function of the sun. So what they're seeing when the Nile turns to blood is a direct assault on King Pharaoh. This could be why the unnamed Pharaoh of the Exodus is so angered by the signs and wonders. They were beyond the limits of his control. It was showing that he was not God, and he was angered by it. Perhaps his continued obstinacy was due to his hoping he could somehow reestablish himself as Lord. He's no longer the one in preeminent power here. He is, uh, he is in fact, being chumped in a sense. So the Nile is the life source for Egypt. If you live on a river, what's life going to look like? What are some things you're going to see from day to day if you live on a river or if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel? You will fishing, doing laundry, cleaning dishes. Corey, you lived on a river? That was, that was, that was quick. That was good. Yeah, you're, you're going to go there for water. You're going to go there to clean stuff. There's recreation time there. Um, there's a lot of things going on at the river. So the Nile is really a life source for Egypt. And turning it to blood gives understanding to the circumstance here. I'm not just wanting to make the river sort of bad. I'm not just wanting you to see the river as slightly unpleasant. What is looming is death, not just temporary inconvenience. That's what's in store for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God's not just saying, I'm going to temporarily inconvenience you to prove a point. He's saying, what's looming is death, certain death by God who is judge. Death is the wages of what? Sin. Connect the dots here. So if you sin, what is your due? Death. That's what God is communicating to the Egyptians here by turning the Nile into blood. Some commentators and historians have said that the Egyptians worshiped the god of the Nile, which is named Hapi or Hapi. I'm not assuming it's Hapi. H-A-P-I. That would be the god of the Nile, as mentioned by many historians and commentators. So some say that they worshiped a god of the Nile. Others say that the Egyptians largely largely worshiped the Nile as a god, as though they was not separate. Some say that they worshiped Pharaoh as the lord over the Nile. There's a lot of different things written out there. The point is, no matter which way you go with it, the issue is idolatry and godlessness. No matter which way you cut it, idolatry and godlessness. And God shows his triumph over each of these by turning the Nile into blood. The Egyptians at this point would begin to see this as a weakness of Pharaoh. Because remember, they up until this point had looked to Pharaoh as the one keeping all this stuff together. If it goes, if calamity occurs, what's going on? Is Pharaoh going to get it back together? So they're seeing this as weakness in Pharaoh. Now, for a moment, consider the evil work of the magicians. What did they do? 
to prove themselves. Yeah. It, it kind of it says kind of plainly they did the same thing. Uh huh. You know, it could have been that they had a sample of water and said, "Look, we can make it." Yeah. Blood too. Yeah. What did they do to get water when they couldn't drink from it? They dug. What I'm seeing here, they could have had a sample somewhere. I'm seeing that they were able to get water that was at least drinkable by digging along the river until they hit water which is still going to be nasty, right? That's still going to be nasty. So what I'm seeing here is that they work real hard to dig up water that they can drink. And then the magicians want some water to prove we can do that too. So they take this hard dug up water and they make the conditions worse. Do y'all see this? We can do that too. Okay, great. There's more blood. They're making the conditions worse. What I'm getting at is this. That's what evil does. Evil is incapable of removing judgment. Evil is incapable of improving your conditions. That's, that's what sin is. Sin makes us think, um, I can do something evil to make life better. Sin makes us think, I can do something evil to maybe skirt judgment for a moment. I can lie and get out of this problem. I can steal and you know, deal with this issue. I can cheat someone and deal with this. But evil only makes things worse. That's all that it's capable of. The only thing that evil is capable of is worsening your conditions. It was the case here. It is the case now. Ironically, each time the magicians replicate the plagues, they only serve to make the conditions worse. Look, more blood. Way to go. Look at chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Okay, think about frogs as I'm reading this. Think about a lot of frogs, not just hundreds, thousands. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt." So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Way to go. More frogs. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord. You see what's happening when he says, I will make you God over Pharaoh? Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people, and the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. I don't know why he said tomorrow. It's sort of weird to me. You'd think he'd say, right now. Moses said, 
Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So Moses is saying, I'm going to do this when I show you how cool I am. I'm going to show you how great my God is. There's no one like our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. Think about the relief of that. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses and cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps. Heaps of dead frogs. And the land stank. Stank's a recurring word in these chapters. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Second plague is frogs. One thing we know is that frogs were worshipped. What do you think of when you think of a frog? Like four of you just went. That was awesome. Warts? What else? Jumping everywhere? What would you do if you had like one frog in your house? Pretty loud croaking. What else with frogs? Yeah. Uh huh. Does everyone know what they do when you try to pick them up? Yes, they use the restroom. That's the technical term. They use the potty. <laughs> like half the room in here is potty training someone, so it's like. What else do you think of when you think of a frog? What do they do before they croak? They puff up. You ever seen a frog? What'd you say? No, no, (laughs) never mind. Uh, They puff up. So there's some possible symbolism here. I don't want to dive too much into the symbolism, but there is some things to consider here. He, he brings these frogs all up on the land, and he's proving something to them about the way that they're living and about their godlessness. So at the very least, there's some symbolism about being puffed up, prideful, self-sufficient. I don't like it either. It's tough. Um, ugly, obnoxious. They stank, said over and over again. Turn to Revelation 16.3. It's always good to see in other parts of the Bible, um, what things may symbolize. Revelation 16, verse 3. This is in the section of the seven bowls of God's wrath. And again, when we're talking about symbolism, we're not talking about firm truths that are unshakable. We're talking about just understanding what's going on here and what would they be feeling? What would they be sensing? Seeing everything covered in frogs, knowing it's a form of God's judgment as God's making himself known. And in 1613, it says this in Revelation. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. We'll turn back to Exodus 8. What's noted there is powers of evil and uncleanness. What God is showing to Egypt is that you are evil and you are unclean. I will make this point to you in a not so subtle way 
by covering everything with frogs and then letting them die so that all you have is piles of dead frogs. And again, all that the magicians could do was bring forth more frogs, multiplying their wickedness because that's all that evil is good for. It didn't relieve them in the least. They couldn't create a frog-catching mechanism. They couldn't do anything good and worthwhile with their evil. All they could do was multiply wickedness. Look at verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land. Have you ever had just one gnat like all up in your business, like in your nose? You ever seen someone who just had a gnat fly up their nose? And they do that <laughs> thing where they like snot everywhere and they're like, I'm sorry, they're sophisticated. Or if it's in their ear and they're doing this, you know? Gnats all over the land, like the dust of the earth. Stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth, so that it, the dust, may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. Some, uh, some translations say gnats, some say, um, uh, what was the other, uh, lice, is what some say. So it's like lice, gnats, neither good. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried, we'll make more, by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Can you just picture how, uh, like sin makes you stupid. That's the point in the Bible. Like in Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. And they try to hide from God behind a what? Fig leaves. Well, first they hide behind the tree. Who created trees? God. Stupid. I'm sure he knows where you are. And then they put fig leaves on, which you take them from the vine. They don't make good clothing. They wither. The wind blows. You don't have it anymore. Sin makes you stupid. They're covered in gnats trying to make more gnats. That's stupid. But they could not, which is even better. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, get this, the magicians, the ones who are evil, the ones who are even using evil power to make these other things happen and try to prove that God's not all that, say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As you keep hearing as the Lord had said, think about the sermon from Sunday so that the scripture would be fulfilled. As the Lord had said, God said this. There's connections here. I've never seen it before last Sunday. But when you see something on a Sunday, don't dismiss it on a Wednesday. It's, it's informing our walk. It's sort of like on Sundays, if we talk about prayer, you don't just pray for that week. And then if you talk about fasting, then you fast next week and don't pray. You're growing in faithfulness. You're becoming more Christ-like. So we learn something on Sunday that informs this just as the Lord had said. Now, gnats. Notice first, this one came without warning. Again, this is that pattern I was talking about when we started that you have two plagues that come with a warning and the third has no warning. It's showing that God won't just go on and on and on warning, warning. There's a time where judgment will settle in. This is foreshadowing, this truth that there's a time where you have to reckon for your sins. Are you going to try to show your own works or are you going to be resting in Christ? That's what the believers would need to be concerned about. And again, this is a proclamation of filth, of uncleanness, 
of their ungodly living. <clears throat> it's interesting, when you look at the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian, they had Egyptian priests. Now, they weren't priests who served the Lord. They were priests who served Egyptian gods. It was, it was carnal. It was worldly. It was about the culture. But they had priests. And I was reading about their Egyptian priests, how they were known for their cleanliness, to the point of wearing only a linen cloth and shaving their heads and bodies every third day for fear of harboring vermin while occupied in their sacred duties. So while they were serving as Egyptian priests, every third day they would shave everything. And they would not wear normal clothes, they would wear just one linen cloth so as to make sure not to harbor vermin. We don't want to be unclean when we commit our pagan worship. That's what they're doing. So this cleanliness was sort of the sign of the pride in their worship and the pride in the way that they moved and their Egyptian priests took it to quite the degree. I don't even want anything in my hair that might come in with me because this is a sacred moment. So this stroke of God sending gnats upon all of them, including the Egyptian priests, would therefore humble their pride and stain their glory, rendering themselves objects of dislike and disgust. Like by their own standard, this is not cool. Yet they're looking at themselves saying, I am disgusting. I am unlikable. This is, un, this, is, this is not acceptable. And there's nothing I can do about it. They're receiving God's judgment. They're seeing the power of God at work. Ultimately, God interrupted their pagan worship. Even by their own carnal standard, they're rendered unclean and unfit for pagan worship by Yahweh. The dust of the earth draws our minds back to Genesis 3. What do we learn in Genesis 3 about the dust of the earth? It's how he made man. You're from dirt. What else? What? And headed back there. 3.17. To Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, of eating the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're reminded that all of creation is under the curse of a holy God. This is meant to be sobering. It's sobering for them, and it's sobering for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything put in order, and it's good, it's good, it's good. This yeah. is bad, bad, bad. Still done by God. Yeah. But it's like it's unordering. Yeah. Where it's almost like things are dying, but yet a new people are going to be born to another watery ordeal of the Red Sea. Yeah. So seeing a decreation in these things, I think it's kind of a bigger picture of exactly that passage. Yeah. From dust you came, but to dust you return. We're yeah. physical walking yeah. representations of decreation as we reach the age of 30 onward. Yeah. So that's happening in a in concentrated place. Yeah. In this context. Yeah. That's a really good point. And some of you shuddered when he said thirty. Yeah. Or a handful of, <laughs> that's reality. Well beyond it. Yeah. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because very convicting, and we know the story. I mean, we we know they're going to make it. We know they're going to be delivered. We also know that in the wilderness, they're going to turn on God. They're going to, like you just said, their hearts will long for Egypt. They're going to paint a picture of Egypt that's not even true. Like our bellies were full and we were happy. What? You're crying out to God. And there's that warning in Psalm 95 to us that's paralleled here that says, when you see hardened hearts, let it be a warning to you to sober you up. Do not harden your heart toward God. Do not harden your heart towards what he's doing. Do not harden your heart in the sense that Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he's responsible for it. Um, it's interesting. I think that the whole gnats turning, the dust, dust turning into gnats, it's interesting that they couldn't do it because I think it's probably one of the easiest ones to, to fool someone with, right? If you take a handful of gnats or a handful of dust, I mean, that's probably the easiest one which gives us some insight into what's actually going on there. Last week, I alluded to the fact that maybe it was just illusion or trickery. Um, But this week, I'm having second thoughts on that as I'm looking at this because they couldn't turn dust into gnats, which I think if you practiced it enough, you could pull one over on someone doing that. So what I'm getting at is that they were not simply doing tricks. They were utilizing evil. God is opposing himself to their evil. So what God is doing is he's making the point that his power is not only greater than their power, but he's also opposed to it. So what's been happening here is they said, we utilized evil, we turned the Nile into blood, we we created more water into blood, and uh, we created more frogs, we did that, but they couldn't turn the dust into gnats. And it was the the point that God was making was that um, my power is greater than yours, and I'm opposed to your evil and what you're doing. And the result is the magicians saying to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're proclaiming the unavoidable and unmatched power of God to Pharaoh. The evil sorcerers, wise men of Egypt are proclaiming this unmatched power of God to Pharaoh, saying this is the finger of God. And this God has power over Egypt And the Pharaoh's persistent defiance of God is harming his own people, and his people are beginning to see it, starting with the sorcerers. You're thinking, oh man, who's going to be harder to reach than the sorcerers, these very evil, wicked ones? 
using very dark powers to, to do things to try to disprove God, those are the first ones who get the greatest insight into saying, God's real. Pharaoh, you're opposing him and things are getting worse for us. We can't do what he's doing. They're sort of not so directly saying, we're not God. God is greater. God can do more. God's power is greater than ours, and it appears that God's power is opposed to ours. And it's the most evil ones in the lot who are the first ones to proclaim God's greatness to Pharaoh. It's a pretty beautiful picture. Yeah. 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 We've gone as far as we can go. Then the cool part about it, this, these are their last recorded words. Their last recorded words. These evil guys who have been sort of this, the one who is in, in the conflict with the evil side. Their last recorded words are this: proclaiming God's greatness. Turn to John eight real quick, and we'll close in the next two minutes with this. As God stoops and touches the dust to become gnats to prove a point about his greatness. John 8 is just, a, I was reading through it today, it's a really beautiful parallel. We're actually going to start in uh, 753 through 811. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? They said uh, this. They said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Just think about in the Exodus, God touching the dust with his finger. This is the finger of God. And Jesus putting his finger in the dust of the earth. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, "Let let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There's a sweet parallel here where God again silences the disputes of evil with his finger. He's showing just his great power, just just with his finger. Jesus stoops to write in the dust to prove a point and display his power, just as God placed his finger in the dust to prove a point and display his power to the Egyptians. Namely, that there is no hope in continued sinfulness and godlessness and evil. The only thing that wickedness is good for is continued wickedness and multiplied wickedness. The judge will do his work of judging, and redemption and freedom from condemnation is only found in a Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for our time in the Word tonight. Uh, Lord, I just, I confess it's pretty easy to read the plagues as though they're sort of a fable or something that happened in a story that was written and that's it. But um, I pray that you would help us to see your power that you are exhibiting on the earth. Lord, help us as we study this to, to tremble even with Pharaoh, to, to marvel with the magicians who said we can't do that. We, we've tried and we don't know how. Help us to boldly proclaim with Moses and Aaron. Lord, you, you have, uh, seeing your interaction with fallen man in these chapters, my hope is that it sobers us up. My hope is that it makes us aware of judgment. My hope is that it ultimately urges us forward in proclaiming the truth of the gospel so that men are not judged according just to what they've done, but that they would find redemption in Christ. That they would have a righteousness counted to them that is Christ's. Lord, we know your word says the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. We got to see Pharaoh suppress the truth again and again in his unrighteousness. We got to see the magicians suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then we see your wrath towards it. And we see you making clear that your power is over and above them and it's opposed to their, their evil acts. Lord, I pray that we could tremble as we read. I pray that we could really take in... Um, each of these plagues over the next few weeks as we continue to climb in, I pray that we would be able to see this and leading up to the Passover, leading up to that final plague, I pray that you would make us more aware of how great you really are. Lord, I feel very feeble in even trying to express these things from the word, knowing that no matter what our expression is, it's less than what really happened that's written. So I just pray that you would stir us according to the work of the Spirit. And remind us that we're dependent upon the work of the Spirit. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.